if you decide to be a chemical engineer, you cannot just go to your garage and start doing chemical reactions, right? That's not how it works. However, if you if you want to be a software engineer, then you can just buy a laptop and start doing code. And all laptops, I don't know if everybody knows that, but basically all laptops can write code, right? So apart from that, the availability of resources online is just huge. For, for example, Harvard has a program called CS50X, which is free, and it covers the basic of uh, computer science. Hello, everyone. Welcome to your brand new podcast called In Your Shoes. This podcast is for you to learn more about new people and professions from around the world. I would like to take you on a journey to understand the life and times of a new person every two weeks and get a chance to get into their shoes to learn what they do, why they do, and how they do it. Andre is a software engineer with many years of experience under his belt. I and Andre used to work in a previous organization, and I found him to be someone who has passion for his craft, broad understanding of the world, and grounded in his curiosity. I'm so happy to have him today as a guest for this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Andre. Hey, Vivek. Thanks for having me. So, Andre, for the people who will be listening to this podcast, can you briefly introduce yourself, like where you come from and what you do for a living? Sure. So, I am a software engineer, mostly front-end. I am originally from Brazil, even though now I live in London. But before coming to London, I lived in Germany for two years. Andre, you mentioned about your profession being a software engineer, mainly front-end. So can you also explain what does a front-end mean here? Yes. So software engineer is someone that writes computer programs, right? I think not everybody has the understanding that the way you you write programs is just by writing text files. So you, you're basically, so a programmer will take an editor and write text files that the computer is able to understand. And a front-end engineer is someone that does that, but mostly focused on the front-end, on the user-facing part, the, 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 the part that the user interacts with. And then there is web front-end, which is what I do mostly. And there's also mobile front-end, which does the interface for uh, cell phone applications. And Andre, how long have you been doing the work on web front-end? I am focusing on web front-end since 2015. However, I am doing web application development since 2007. It's been a long time. <laughs> Absolutely. And could you also kindly share what have you been working on prior to 2015, if not web front-end? I was mostly working on .NET, uh, ASP.NET MVC. And I was doing the role of full stack. And I also was architect for, for, for Thomson Writers for quite a while. But in 2015, this was the year that React became prominent. And I think from, from that time on, uh, front-end became more 
what you would expect for an application because before that it, it was more considered a website so i think in the jquery times which is before 2015 2014 um i think front-end development was not considered to be as much development as, for example, desktop applications. And I, I think this is the time where stuff changed and uh, applications for the browser, they became more sophisticated. And that's where I decided to migrate to be a full-time front-end engineer. Fantastic. Andre, from your understanding, what led to this transition from applications heavily running on desktop and being used in desktop and then fully getting on the web, uh, which is also one of the reasons I believe you made the transition to writing applications on the web. Before this, before the browsers became very capable, which I think is in the time of Angular, which was before 2015, because 2015 is when React became prominent. But before that, uh, there was also Backbone. There, there, there was a period of, of transition from, from jQuery to, 2000, to, to, to React. And um, some applications were already running on a browser, but the browser was not that capable. For example, there was no good audio APIs or video APIs, or uh, it was really, um, the browsers were not very consistent. So you, you could not rely that the, the, the experience would be consistent across multiple browsers, which now is more or less the case. And before, before that time, Adobe, for example, or Micromedia at the time, they were pushing for what was called at the time rich internet applications, uh, RIA. And for example, there was Flex, which is a framework for building internet, uh, applications that Micromedia did on top of the Flash runtime. And the first experience that I had with, with with web application was exactly building flex applications. But then we migrated to .NET. And on the .NET time, the front-end experience was not that good. For, for example, at that time, if you wanted to transition from one page to the other, there would be a full browser refresh, which now is not the case because now you have perfect uh, client routing. For example, the, the history API of the browser that allows you to push a new URL or replace the current URL, for example, that didn't exist before HTML5. Right. So what I understand is a bunch of improvements on the browser side with ability to basically build rich applications, which was not that common and not very democratic. Because as you said, I think there were some specific frameworks from companies like Macromedia and Adobe to build on it, but it later then became part of the fabric of the browser so that everybody could use the common tools and technologies to build these applications day in and day out. That's right. So the thing is, it is much more practical from the user's perspective to just go to a browser, type a URL, and use an application without having to install it. I think this would have explained the, the, the question much better. Because prior to that, 
you would have to install first you would have to know that's that an application exists and then you would have to download an installer and then you would have to trust that that application actually is not going to do any harm to your computer and then after you install it you would use it so the the transition to a, a browser um application is much better in the sense that for example you can trust that the browser is not going to let that application to do any harm to your computer for example and it's much simpler because then you don't have to install anything and i think yeah for example uh the office suite for example i, I think everybody today just uses a web version either office uh, uh 365 or, or google docs right yeah that's actually a really good answer so I think we have loads of details in here, essentially the progress that the browsers have made over a period of time. And then essentially now everything that you could have done with a desktop is now possible to do it on a browser. That's right. Thanks, thanks Andre for that. So Andre, what attracted you to this profession? I think it is a type of art in a way, um, and I found it fascinating that you could tell a computer what to do. And I think mostly it's about the impact you can have. Because for example, if you are a developer for a website um, or a web application that a lot of people use, then you can have a massive impact. For example, I, I have a, a text editor called ReactMDE that I made on my free time. And it has over 14,000 downloads per week, at least on NPM. That doesn't translate to real downloads in a real application. Right. But I would assume that a lot of people use it. And it's really satisfying. So you essentially get the satisfaction that the work you do is then used by many people around the world. Yes, that's that, that's it. Uh, Andre, for our listeners, uh, if you could briefly describe how does a typical day look like for a software engineer like you, that'll be really great. Sure. We work mostly on a agile environment, meaning that we have sprints. Um, for, for those who don't know, basically a sprint is a section of work that has to be delivered over, for example, two weeks. And then this this sprint will start with planning and it will end with a retro. And then the team will collectively decide what has to be delivered throughout that sprint. And then on every day, now going back to your question, every day would start with, uh, for example, a stand-up, which everybody just shares what they're doing. Um, basically, what what we do is associated with a ticket. So normally on that uh, sprint, there will be tickets that the team collectively agreed to work on. So on the standup, for example, everybody will share what tickets they're working on, what uh, roadblocks they have, uh, if, if they are blocking someone, if they are being blocked by someone, if they can have some help. And then we will develop stuff. And I think most people don't know, but we only develop code for around 25% of the time <laughs> because there is a lot of meanings. So it is interesting how the more people you have on a project, the more communication will be necessary. 
and the less you're going to actually code. So you said that uh, a quarter of your time is actually the time you spend writing code. Yes. And the rest is in meetings. How do you see that proportion of time with respect to the actual work do you do? Do you see this useful time? Uh, the 75% that you spend on other things beyond writing code? Or it's just the necessary evil of a working in large organization? <laughs> I think it's more the latter. It's more like a necessary evil. I, I don't think I don't think anybody um, thinks it's very productive to be part to participate on these meetings, but we all know that we have to do that. So Andre, I would like to also reflect on the part that you mentioned that you get inspired and really motivated and other people use your work. Could you share some more examples or references from your experience where you had this feeling that the work that you are doing is really being used and is helping other people? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think on all the jobs that I had so far, I could have this experience of this sensation that people are actually using what I'm doing. Well, that's that's the point of the work, right? So on Zalando, for example, when you see all of those RPS, <laughs> you say, oh, people are actually using this thing that we're doing. That That's, that's pretty cool. So yeah, so my, my first job was as uh, an engineer for a CRM for lawyers in Brazil. And it will, it's always very satisfying when you're talking to uh, commercial people and they are sharing the, the customer's experience with the product. Um, and now I also work with a tool. Uh, but now I work at Tessian in London, and it's a tool to help um, companies to secure their emails. So every time we have a conversation with product people or with with salespeople, and they share um, the impact we're having on the customers, uh, I think it's it's always very satisfying. So Andre, in your experience, how does a software engineer understand what to build in order to satisfy the customer who is going to use it? So that is primarily the job of the product person. Um, of, co of course, uh, a good engineer will also be very sensible <laughs> in doing stuff that makes sense and that's going to have a positive impact on the customer, right? Right. But yeah so i think the way a software engineer can contribute is by for example normally the product person will fill in the tickets um, of what they think will have the best impact on the customer and throughout the meetings we have for example on the plan on the planning on the retros or on the one-to-one -one, uh, meetings we have with the product people we can try to influence and with our own experience because so software engineers, they're often very uh, up to date with the best practice for uh, user experience. And we should use that and try to push for the best with, with the product people, yeah. Okay. So Andre, we will switch gears to something different about the work that you're doing. 
So every job and profession has its own stereotypes, perhaps these perceived notions, uh, which are sometimes right, sometimes not right. So from your point of view and your understanding, what has been some of the stereotypes of the profession of a software engineer? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we're very stereotypical. I think we're perceived as um, introverts, definitely um, good with logic. But I, I think it's mostly about not being a very social person. That's that's how we're, we're perceived. And I think there's, there's truth on that. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I, I, I think developers as a whole, they are a bit, at least a bit socially awkward. But that's, of course, that that's not like we're just normal people, right? But I think that's, and also I think we're perceived as being smart, which is good. And where do you think this, this perceived notion that software engineers are usually introvert comes from? Um, I think it's probably it probably comes from the fact that we are actually <laughs> introvert. When you look at the person, like doesn't like to hang hang out much. I don't know. I, I I think there's a there's a bit of truth on that. Okay, Andre. For someone who would like to get into this profession of a software engineer, what would you advise for them be? Like, what should they study? What experiences should they have uh, in order to be able to work in this profession? So, I think there is... I think people don't realize how easy it is for you to get into this profession if you actually want to do so. Because, for example, if you decide to be a chemical engineer, you cannot just go to your garage and start doing chemical reactions, right? That's not how it works. However, right. if you if you want to be a software engineer, then you can just buy a laptop and start doing code. And all laptops, I don't know if everybody knows that, but basically all laptops can write code, right? Right. So apart from that, the availability of resources online is just huge. For, for example, Harvard has a program called CS50X, which is free, and it covers the basic of uh, computer science. And apart from that, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of resources. For example, there is, um, just a moment, there is something called OSSU, which okay. is the, um, is the Open Source Society University, which is basically a GitHub repository that has a list of classes from actual universities that covers the whole, the whole path for you to become a computer scientist and everything is just free. Wow. Yeah, you can just do that. And for example, for, for actually um, exercising, for, for doing, for, for practicing, there is, for example, HackerRank, there is a platform for you to, so basically HackerRank is a collection of problems and an engine to test whether your solution is correct. So you can go there and you can start in an easy mode and then there's gonna be a list of problems. Then you, you pick the problems, you, you solve the, 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 the problem using a real computer language of your choice on your computer. And then you upload the solution there 
and they will instantly tell you whether or not that is correct. And there's also a community to help you to get to the solution in case you, you get stuck. Um, so I think the availability of options is huge. What I would do is I would start with probably CS50X and then I would go to this OSU and do the program, the, the, the whole path. Um, and I would parallelly um, solve problems on hackering. And there is also a lot, for example, if you have questions, Stack Overflow is just amazing. So possibly, I, I cannot tell that for sure, but possibly Stack Overflow is the best uh, question and answer platform in the world for any area. So for example, if you have any question, imagine you are trying to solve a problem on HackerRank, or if you're stuck on a class on, on CS50X, for example, you can just go to Stack Overflow and ask a question. Well, and also, um, I think a, a question people usually have is, do you need do you need a diploma, a college diploma to be a software engineer? Probably, well, it helps, right? But it's not totally necessary. So I, I think I think I think even if people are already into other careers and they want to switch, if they have a couple of hours per day, I would say more than one. But if they have a couple of hours per day, they can become a software engineer at, at any time. Fantastic! I think uh, that is a very valuable advice that becoming a software engineer is very democratic process. Yes. And it's not limited by expensive degrees from universities that you should have, but rather your curiosity and your interest. That's true. Brilliant. So Andre, from your experience and your interests, do you like to any do you like to share any recommendation around uh, books or blogs or perhaps podcasts? Uh, that would help people? I would like to share one podcast that I think is just the best for software engineer. It's called Software Engineering Daily. Okay. It's by a guy called Jeff Meyerson. And he basically interviews people from all areas every day, every business day. So it's five episodes per week. Wow. It's free. And I think if you listen to it frequently, you definitely get a very good grasp of where the industry is going to. For example, they have episodes for blockchain, for machine learning, for front end, for absolutely everything. So yeah, I think Software Engineering Daily is my is my one recommendation. Okay, thank you, Andre. Before you leave, Andre, I would also like to add a bonus question because I think uh, this might be very useful for the listeners. So you mentioned about someone getting into this field. There are multiple options for them to get into this business and to get into this profession. But what would you advise software engineers who are interested to level up or really become better in this? So what would be your advice for them? I think keeping up to date um, is something people should do and not everybody even have the possibility to do. Because imagine if you have a family, for example, and you have to take care of your kids. So how, how do you get home, for example, and you go to get up to date, right? Because 
um, it was not mentioned before, but one thing that is very particular to the software engineering industry is that things evolve pretty fast and change a lot. Right. So keeping up to date is, I think it's necessary. And also, also being open to the new, because I think one thing that people often fall, one trap that people often fall into is that mode in which, oh, no, no, uh, this is how I do it. And this is how I always did in the past. And I'm going to continue to do that. And everything that is new is bad. I know a lot of people that fall into this mentality. So my advice is try as much as you can to be open-minded to the new and try to get up to date, up to date as, as much as possible. And for you to get up to date, there's a lot of options. For example, there is Hacker News, which is an amazing resource. There is Reddit with a lot of subreddits about uh, computer science and programming as a whole. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Andre. Uh, Andre, this conversation was very enlightening for me and also I believe for the people who will be listening to this podcast in the future. Uh, if the listeners would like to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to connect with you? I am not very active. However, I have a Twitter handle, which is Andre R-P-E-N-A. Andre Arpena, Andre P-E-N-A. Fantastic. Thank you, Andre. I really appreciate your time and your patience to join this podcast as a guest. And I look forward for more conversations on this topic in the future. Sure. Glad, glad to talk to you again. Thank you, Andre. Nice. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining this podcast. I hope this was useful and you learned a lot. For more such great podcasts, please do not forget to subscribe to the podcast channel In Your Shoes on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Music. New podcasts are uploaded every two weeks. Goodbye.